Who here remembers where they were on the evening of January 8, 2012? I'm going to tell you my story, and it's going to jog your memory. <laughs> I was preaching a sermon at Sarnia Christian Reformed Church in Canada, yes, and I had forgotten when I had agreed to this preaching gig uh, that maybe my Steelers might actually make the playoffs. So... You, some of you, the memories are getting jogged now, right? You're right. Oh, wait, wait, this is starting to sound familiar. Um, if it doesn't, bear with me. So I finished preaching the sermon. I said my goodbyes. I click, quickly ran out of the church, got in my car, pulled down on the main street, pulled into the first sports bar I could see. Uh, I, I saddled up to the, to the bar. I got myself a drink. I turned my eyes to the screen, and I watched Tim Tebow throw the most amazing pass ever thrown in the history of passes, a completion to Demarius, Demarius Thomas, wasn't it? Demarius Thomas, they ran in, they won the game. I finished my drink and I said, I guess miracles do happen and I moved to Denver the next year. I'm not making, uh, that last part, I'm not making up at all. I actually did then move to Denver the next year. Let me back the story up a little bit so we can land this in the context. About three years earlier, Tim Tebow was in the process of leading Florida State to what would become then the national championships. During the course of the season, he did like many players do. Uh, he started to take that opportunity to have the under eye blackout, and he had a verse that he always put under his eyes. Anybody know that verse that he had under his eyes at that time? He did, he did. My Joanne, you're like, you know this. You can get up here and give this sermon from this point out here. Um, no, so he always had Philippians 4.15. Anybody, anybody? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like the perfect football verse, right? The perfect athlete's verse. I mean, like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna crush my enemies and see. The no, um, it's a great verse. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But as they were nearing the championships, he said he just began prayerfully thinking about this opportunity on a national stage, what he could do with it, why God might be bringing him forward. And he says about the time, and you can listen to him tell the story if you just Google like Tim Tebow 316 story, it'll pop up and you can watch it. Um, he said the Lord just put John 316 on his heart. So he tells a funny story about the superstitions around football and he gets his coach's permission. And on the championship game on January 8th, 2009, he debuted John 3.16 on his eye blackout. The next day or the day after perhaps, he got a call from the coach and the coach told him, I just want you to know, Tim, like congratulations, like 94 million people Google John 3.16. 94 million people. Fast forward three years, January 8th, 2012. Tim Tebow is still wearing John 3.16 on his eye blackout. He throws a miraculous pass. They win the game. They go on to face, uh, who was it then? That would have been uh, New England that year. And He's about to go out to the press following the game. And one of the coaches or press agents, I don't know how it all plays out, they pulled him aside and said, said, Tim, do you realize what happened? He said, yeah, like we're going. Like he said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what just happened. And I'm gonna read these stats. These are all online for you to find out too. Um, he, said, he said, do you realize that in tonight's game, you just threw for 316 yards? 
your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per uh, carry were 30, per catch were 31.6. Your time of possession was 3.16 seconds, and the ratings, whatever this means, were 31.6. Amen. And once again, over 90 million people Googled John 3.16. He tells the story in a quite funny way. He said, how do 94 million people not know what John 3.16 is? Praise be to God. He tells a wonderful story about what God can do with an humble offering, what God can do again with a humble offering. But as fun, as amazing, as wonderful as that story is, Tim Tebow would say this as well. There's an even better story. And it's the story behind John 3.16. We love John 3, 16 so much, and I've kind of intentionally not said it yet, so you're all kind of like thinking it there in the back of your head. We sometimes forget the context of John 3, 16. That's what you are about to get today. Good for you. You're going to understand this verse in a much deeper, richer, wonderful way to make it all the more meaningful for all of us to carry with us in our own way this wonderful promise, this wonderful confession, this wonderful hope that we have. From John 3:16. Let me read it out for you. Follow along uh, on your phone and your Bible on the screen, however you wish. Here we go. The story of John 3:16. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And now, finally, <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of our Lord. Today's three-part sermon is coming a little bit differently. We're gonna start with part three, 
move to part two, and then we're going to land at part one. So follow along as if you're watching a movie that's been all rearranged, and you have to connect the dots as it goes along. Part three, Good Friday, John chapter 19. Jesus has been crucified. What now? Two men, seemingly out of nowhere, come forward. A man named Joseph of Arimathea and this guy, Nicodemus. They go to Pilate, they get permission, they take the body. Nicodemus is the one who brings 75 pounds of burial spices. They prepare the body and they play Jesus in a tomb in a garden that had never been used before. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about where Nicodemus is at this stage in his life and what this all means, but this much we do know for sure. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Peter has denied Jesus. The disciples have abandoned Jesus and are gonna be cowering in the corner of an upper room somewhere in the holy city. He has been executed. He has died. But Joseph and Nicodemus, and understand the context of this, are willing at this point to be associated with this now convicted, killed, crucified criminal. And there's something to that, to associate with the one who lost more, the one who paid the price more, the one who would be looked down upon as he hung on that cross. And they're willing to be associated just by going to Pilate, by taking the body, by caring for the body, by putting that body in the tomb. And as many a preacher has expounded upon come Easter morning, and for this we owe them a gratitude of debt, because otherwise that body may have been ceremoniously ripped down from that cross and thrown into a mass grave or in a garbage dump called Gehenna, and we might never have known what became of Jesus. But because they took the body, because they prepared the body, because they put that body in a tomb, the women knew where to go on Easter morning. And the women knew that where there was a tomb with a body three days earlier, there was now an empty tomb. And the women get to run and tell all the other disciples, he is risen. I knew Heather would say that. <laughs> so. Part two, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's John chapter seven. Jesus gets up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and he makes this profession and it sounds like other things that he said, but he's saying it before a whole crowd. I mean a crowd, I mean a multitude of people at this point. And he proclaims, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink and from you will flow rivers of living water. It's offensive enough just to say, come and drink from me, but then to profess, and if you drink from me, even from your life can come living water. Now, that may just sound like something Jesus says to us. We're so far removed, we don't understand the depth of the context of what is unfolding in Jesus' pronouncement here. So let me make it clear to you. During the Feast of the Tabernacles, a procession of priests, and there could have been hundreds of priests, a procession of priests would go to the Pool of Siloam and they would take jars and they'd take the jars and they'd go up to the altar and then they would begin to pour out that water on the altar. And as you can imagine, priest after priest after priest after priest 
pouring that water out on that altar, how it almost became itself like a river flowing down from the altar into the temple, down the steps, even down into the streets of Jerusalem. Reminds us of something else John would say, the promise of a time in Revelation chapter 22, when a river of life would flow from the throne of God and on either side of that river would stand the tree of life and from that tree of life would bear a crop in every month and from that fruit would come eternal life for all who gather and worship and celebrate eternity with the lamb seated on the throne. Oh yeah, Jesus knew what he was doing when he got up there and he said, I am that spring of living water. All you who are thirsty, drink from me, and from you will come living waters. Well, as you can imagine, the people who got it got a little upset by it. There was a kerfuffle going on already. Who is this Jesus? Is he a Messiah? Is he a madman? We don't know. And the temple guards at that time always be wary when there are temple guards, by the way. When the temple guards saw all the commotion that was happening, they knew it would have been a dangerous situation to intervene. So they just politely stepped back and went back to that Jewish ruling council who were already ready to profess guilt upon, judge, upon Jesus. But Nicodemus shows his face again. And it's Nicodemus who stands up and stands in and says, do we already convict a man who has not had a chance to speak? on his own behalf. Hmm. Maybe Nicodemus was moving closer to understanding who this Jesus really was. And now we land at part one, the part we already read, the part where, G where Nicodemus seemingly out of nowhere shows up on this night to have interaction with Jesus. Now, many a preacher, many will kind of wax eloquently on about the nighttime visit. And to be perfectly honest, you can preach a good sermon around that, but I don't know how much we should make or not make about this nighttime visit. Yeah, sometimes things come out at night. Sometimes things we don't like come out at night. Yeah, in the daytime, we're used to kind of putting on airs, putting on our good face, you know, going through, through all the motions. There does seem to be something about the nighttime when ironically, almost in the darkness, the truth comes out, questions arise. I do like to reflect on the fact that whenever we're kids, we're afraid of what comes out of us, you know, from the darkness, but whenever we get a little older, a little wiser, a little more mature, we might be more afraid of what's going to come from within us. <laughs> in the dark time. We did talk about that a few years ago when we talked about guarding our heart and that that comes from within. Well, for whatever reason, and I think maybe it just had to do more with Nicodemus wanting some time alone with Jesus to go deep with him, to really get down into the thick of it with this man from Nazareth who's making this commotion. So he does approach Jesus, however it plays out, he's able to have an audience with him. It would appear that we can kind of picture the disciples around on the outskirts of a conversation that goes on. But we can say this, from the onset, it seems that Nicodemus is still at this point wanting to put himself on equal ground with Jesus. And so he refers to him as rabbi, rabbi to rabbi, teacher to teacher, you know, kind of one-on-one. -on -one. So there is something there. But he does have a very sincere question because he's observed something. We're not knocking Nicodemus here, of course. He says, the things you're doing, 
Nobody could do this if God wasn't with him. Maybe he's trying to get an edge up. Maybe he's just thinking it's some learning. It's, you know, I just haven't got that nugget of wisdom. I didn't read that one passage enough. I didn't say the right prayer. I didn't give the right offering. I, 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 maybe you can just teach me that extra special, that kind of thing that I need to know, that thing I need to do, and maybe I can get up to doing the things that you're doing, Jesus. Jesus kind of sees right through this. And, and again, I don't want to belittle Nicodemus in saying he's buttering him up because it seems that he had some honest questions and was honestly searching for, for truth. But Jesus, as Jesus does, he, he, he just kind of seizes this opportunity. And it's like, I'm not going to speak to your question. I'm not going to speak to the matters that you think are most important. I'm going to seize this as an opportunity to speak of truth and the reality of who I am and the reality of why I came. And he says three things. and and. You know, we could do a three-part series on this, but we're going to get on with other things, so you're going to have to keep up with the story here, friends. Um, he's going to say three things in short order that cover a lot. First, he, he says, no one, no one's going to see the kingdom of God unless they're born again, which in context is kind of out of nowhere, right? Like, wait, what? Okay, so that's not, okay, Jesus, that's a lot. Anybody who's going to see the kingdom has to be born again. Then Jesus goes further. He says, uh, you, you have to be born of flesh and the spirit. And, and then he kind of goes off on this thought about you, you look at the, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't know where it came from or, or where it's going. And, and it's the same being born of the spirit, the spirit, the ruah, the breath of God breathes as God will and brings people this new life. Nicodemus is all the more bewildered, it would seem at this point. And then Jesus is going to take him as another step deeper all of a sudden. And then he points him to this incredibly obscure story from Numbers 21. Now, understand this. Numbers 21, the story, is just a few short verses. And it's the kind of thing that if you were just doing a Bible reading through the year plan and, and you didn't know where it was going, you'd read this and you'd probably dismiss it. And if you didn't dismiss it, you'd at least say, that's... That just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't fit with the flow of the story because here's the story. And I think you'll agree with me that it doesn't fit with the flow of the story. The people of God are being led out of Egypt, out of slavery and onto the promised land. We know that there's going to be a long time of God's working in and through the people through that desert wandering, but they've come to the point where they're already complaining Oh, why'd we ever leave Egypt? At least we knew we were slaves there. We don't even know what we are out here in the desert. At least we had homes. At least we had food to eat. They're actually complaining about the good old days of slavery in Egypt. And then snakes show up. And the snakes start biting people. And people are getting sick and apparently even dropping dead. And the people say, oh, we're sorry again, God. And they go to Moses and God tells Moses... And it's really just like two verses. Moses, make a snake out of bronze, put it on a stick, set it up in the center of the gathering of the people. When they look at the snake, if they get bit, they will be well. And the story's over. It just goes on from them. Wait, the God who was so mad about making a golden calf now wants to make a bronze snake and put, what is going on here? And it's like the people just drop it and leave it for centuries until Jesus picks it up. And Jesus picks it up and just makes this reference. And he says, Nicodemus, it's like this. 
Just as Moses lifted up that snake in the desert and the people looked on it and got better, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. End of story. And when I say end of story, I mean if you look in your Bible, you'll notice that the quotation marks, the parenthetical statements there, they end. We're done with Nick. Nick's part in the story is over until we'll see him at the Feast of Tabernacles, until we'll see him again on Good Friday. But end of story for Nick at this time, because let's remember that John, in his telling his gospel, he's not telling a story about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a means to an end. I mean, he's more than that. He's a man whom Jesus loves and gave his life for. And it would seem by all reasonable interpretations of the text that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that, celebrate that, 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 he, that he would. But John just uses these interactions, these people, these episodes, these discourses to tell us more and more and more and more about Jesus. A woman at a well, a woman set up for execution, uh, a crowd of 5,000 needing fed. They're all just these means to John's end to tell us more about Jesus and who he is and why he came and what he can do for us. And I like to picture John at this moment on that Isle of Patmos where he's living out the end of his days. Matthew and Mark and Luke have already written their gospels. He's gonna write some letters to the churches. Not sure on the timeline if he's already had this wonderful revelation of things to come and things that will be. I don't know where this falls in the course, but at some point the story is told that he was being urged to write down what he knew, what he experienced, what he would have people be told about this Jesus Christ. And he's stringing together these stories and he's thinking about that time with Nicodemus and oh, Nicodemus is gonna show up again at the tabernacle feast and oh, he's gonna show up again and maybe I should say something about Nicodemus. So he starts writing about this early, early on conversation with Nicodemus and he talks and he's kind of probably summarizing the conversation. You know, I mean, we just read it in just a matter of two minutes. So this is a, probably a broader conversation, but I, but I picture him getting to that last part about the, about the son of man being raised up And it's like he just kind of maybe takes a step back from writing it all down, maybe whimsically, you know, like looks off, you know, to the sunset or something. And he says, man, God, God so loved the world. And if you'll bear with me for dramatic uh, emphasis here, <laughs> man, God so loved the world that he, that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him, won't perish, but could have eternal life. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Nick, it's not about you and about who you were born into. It's not about you and your religious education. It's not about you and all of these things you do to try to earn your righteousness. Nick, it's not even about you and getting extra insight into the workings and the inner workings of the mind of God and how it is I'm doing things. Nick, it's, it's, it's not about you at all in the most wonderful ways. It's actually all about the love of God. It's actually all about how much God loved us that he was willing to send his son. It's actually about how much Jesus loves us and was willingly 
willingly going to lay down his life to die for our sins, to pay the penalty due us that would set up resurrection, that somehow when we look upon Jesus lifted high, healing can come into our lives, more than just healing like the people in the desert were getting from the snake bites. It's not just healing, it's, it's life. It's eternal life. And, and now, if you'll bear with me for a moment, it, it seems then to make sense in that order. It seems to make sense, in John's mind at least, in what he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand, friends, God was loving you and doing things for you long before you even entered into the picture. So he makes this statement, anybody has to, that's going to see the kingdom of God has to be born again. Now, I was not consulted by my parents on my birth. I was not consulted on when I was going to be born and where I was going to be born and whether I'd be male or female, rich or poor, any of the color of my hair, color of my eyes. I was not consulted on any of those things. And I'm going to guess that none of you were consulted on matters of your physical birth. It happened to you. And he's telling Nicodemus and he's telling us something happens to us because that's how much God loves us. While we are still in sin, while we are dead in our transgressions, while we were still far from God, God began a movement of redemption and a plan for eternal life. And it says it comes to us like this, that you just have to be born again. Just as you were born physically at one time, and then you only, you only kind of became aware of it later in your life, which is if you think about your physical birth, you only became aware of later in your life. So it is with people who are born of the Spirit. It seems that they look back and they recognize, while I was still in sin and dead in my transgressions and far from God, God began a movement in my life. And maybe that movement of God in your life was reflected in getting an invitation to come to church or being taken to a Bible camp whenever you're a young person or maybe a coworker just starting to share with you stories of how much they love Jesus and would love for you to come to their church. I don't know, God works in wonderful ways, but all of a sudden, and many of us would tell the story, we tell different stories of faith. Many of us might say, I spent a long time in my life not caring about any of these things of church and Jesus and God and faith and being born again. But then all of a sudden, I got more curious. I got more interested. And maybe it happened in a service like this. Maybe it happened in an altar call at camp whenever you were a kid. Maybe it happened in a revival ceremony when you were on a college campus. I don't know. But at some point, all of a sudden, you were believing things about God and Jesus Christ. Which kind of leads to that second part of what Jesus was saying, unless you're born of water and spirit. And there's a lot we can talk about that. But that seems to be a point of reference to say, all of a sudden, John the Baptist's message, and I know we're covering a lot of territory here, all of a sudden, John the Baptist's message to repent and confess your sins and to give your life to God makes sense. Oh, oh my goodness, I should actually do that thing. I should repent. I should ask for forgiveness. I should be cleansed. I should show that I'm being born again by going through the waters of baptism and stepping into the family of God. And then all of a sudden, after the Spirit moves on us and we confess our sins and give our lives to God, then all of a sudden it's like we look at that cross and for the first time maybe in our lives, it just makes perfect sense. 
I look upon that cross, Jesus lifted high, and I know that I have eternal life because of him. It's John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. It makes perfect sense to me. Thanks be to God. And I hope it makes perfect sense to you. Thanks be to God. I watched the Super Bowl again this past year. The band can get ready to come up to play because I got to drive this one home. I watched the Super Bowl again this year. I don't care about the Steelers anymore. Broncos didn't make it. I was more interested in the commercials this year. <laughs> so we went to the Roth's house and some of us were watching the game. But I was watching the advertisements with great interest this year because I caught wind of something that was going to happen this year that was supposed to be something new, unprecedented, unheard of. A group of believers started a movement and they raised a lot of money to do it and they're gonna run what ended up being two ads during the Super Bowl campaign. I don't know if you caught them, I don't know if you didn't. I know that a lot of Christians are making much to do about it or nothing to do about it. Some Christians are saying it's great, some are already criticizing it. I don't wanna get into that mire. But I do like what it said. It simply said, he gets us. He gets us. And not to be outdone, they were very happy to say 114 million people watched the Super Bowl this past year. So maybe 114 million people heard of Jesus Christ. He gets us. And so maybe I would propose to you, if anybody says, so what does that mean? He gets us. Well, maybe like Tim Tebow, maybe like Jesus, maybe like John writing his gospel, you might just begin the conversation like this way. You know what that means he gets us? It just means that God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. And maybe that can be the beginning of a whole new life. Let me pray, friends, and we're gonna worship God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you loved us enough to send us your son. Jesus, I thank you that you loved us so much that you willingly laid down your life. Father, Son, and now Holy Spirit, move on our lives so that as we look upon that cross, we may know with the full assurance of faith and the witness of your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection, that we can now not perish, but have eternal life. This is your gift to us. We receive it with joy. And we worship you now. In your name we pray, amen. Let's worship.